welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week, as part of our season on sex, scandal and social climbers, we are going to be discussing the literary critic, patron and party girl, Elizabeth Montague, also known as the Queen of the Blue Stockings. Now, Elizabeth Robinson was born in York in 1718. Mum was an heiress and dad was a landowner and a gentleman, so they were able to afford an excellent education for all nine of their children, including the girls. Elizabeth was particularly fond of literature and frequently visited the library at Cambridge, where her grandfather was a librarian and also like a very prominent figure on campus. At 20, Elizabeth wrote that she had no desire to get married, but at 24, she ended up marrying a very wealthy man named Edward Montague, who owned several coal mines and estates in Northumberland. And uh, fun fact, he was the grandson of the first Earl of Sandwich, who is my favorite Earl. Mine too. Edward was 30 years older than his wife and preferred hanging out in his library, attending to business matters and studying mathematics and astronomy, while Elizabeth, you know, liked to party and ran in very connected and uh, and ran in very well connected and aristocratic circles. The pair only had one child who sadly passed away at 15 months. And um, it wasn't exactly a love match between these two. Edward and Elizabeth did seem to get along. The Montagues are often described as leading separate lives, but he did include his wife in estate management Mm. and the coal business as well. And in fact, when he died, Edward left his entire estate to her to run rather than to like a distant male relative. And she became one of the richest women in England. That's so nice. I know. Not not setting the house on fire with love, but, you know, there's some, like, quiet companionship, a bit of respect. If you can't have love, this seems fine, right? I'll ask Sam if that's what our marriage is. <laughs> <laughs> I just should have checked this beforehand, but is this, like, a love marriage or is this some kind of, like, quiet business arrangement? Yeah, where you're going to leave me the richest woman in, in England. I like should that. hope so. It's a good trade-off. Yes. You know. So by the 1750s, Elizabeth had gained a reputation as a celebrated hostess of literary gatherings, along with her friend Elizabeth Vasey. Together, they formed the Blue Stocking Society, which was a loosely organized group of privileged women and some men as well, with a particular interest in literature and the arts. There was no booze, no politics and no cards allowed at their gatherings. And the origin of the term blue stocking is somewhat obscure, but it seems that it originated from Benjamin Stillingfleet, which is a name, who was hesitant to attend an event because he didn't have the proper attire. And Elizabeth Vasey, Montague's friend and fellow hostess said, you know, don't don't mind the dress, just come in your blue stockings. And then it was the writer and clergyman Samuel Johnson who is said to have given Montague the nickname the Queen of the Blues because, of course, she hosted many gatherings of celebrated authors and intellectuals at her London home as well as at her house in Bath, which was number 16 Royal Crescent, which I believe you're familiar with, Hannah. 
Yes, it's my home. No, uh, on my honeymoon, which was recently, uh, I dragged Sam to Bath, even though we live in Bristol, and we just stayed there for a week. And we went to, number one, the Royal Crescent, which is a museum on the Crescent that's been furnished as, in the style of, in the decor of a wealthy household (laughs) in the late 1790s. So the rooms were all set up, as if someone's, you know, just stepped out of it. And mm-hmm. there's a narrative as you walk through, and I won't tell you how they do it, but don't believe the trip advisor. I feel like this museum was built for Bonnets listeners. I we okay. had a great time. We went midweek. We were the only people in there. It was like a fantastic experience. I can understand that it would maybe be lessened if it was really busy. There's like some audio visual mm-hmm. stuff going on. So check when it's quiet and go then if you want to immerse yourself. Um, I will say as well, I I got into not a row, but uh, I got, you know, a conversation, a discussion with Mm -hmm. one of the volunteers because they were like, somehow Jane Austen came up and they were like, well, you know, I don't really like Jane Austen. And this, this house predates her anyway. And I was like, does it? And she was like, well, she, you know, she didn't live in Bath then. And I was like, come on. She visited. Northanger Abbey was set in Bath around this time. You can't say this predates Jane Austen at all. Mm-hmm. And so I was stood in the corner like, oh, wow, this is going to be your favourite honeymoon memory. Just telling this woman off. <laughs> and correct. it. One of my favourite one of my favourite moments. Stood out, stood out to really you. Really stood out, yeah. So uh, I took loads of photos. I will give them to you, Lauren. You can post them mm-hmm. on the social media. Excellent. See how uh, Elizabeth Montague's bedroom might have looked. Yeah, it's get, well. Get, get an idea. The bedrooms are cute. So Elizabeth is best known as a literary influencer. That's what I'm calling her. That, yeah. Um, Books makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Bookstagram. She'd be big on Bookstagram. Um, she did do some of her own writing, however. So she's best known for an essay entitled An Essay on the Writings and Genius of Shakespeare, which is all about appreciating Shakespeare as a dramatist and like the feeling that he mm. inspires rather than going in and like doing a super critique of the language. Makes sense to me. Yeah, man. Um, sounds good. And today she is very well known for the large volume of correspondence that she left behind. Really large, over 7,000 letters that are currently being digitized by today's guests. Dr. Anna Louise Senkyu has just completed her thesis entitled Made in the Media, Actresses, Celebrity and the Periodical Press in the Late 18th Century under Professor Ros Ballister at the University of Oxford and is currently working on turning it into a book. As well as working on the EMCO project, she is also a research assistant for opening the Edgeworth Papers and the correspondence of Jemima Gray. When she is not transcribing 18th century women's letters, she works on and teaches 18th century drama, women's writing and newspapers in fiction, which all sounds really interesting. Newspapers in fiction what yeah we need an episode on that definitely um dr jack orchard has recently completed a phd thesis on reading and sociability in the correspondence networks of elizabeth montague and friends through a collaborative doctoral award between swansea university and electronic enlightenment at the bodleian library in oxford 
Jack has also published an open access digital edition of 25 letters by or relating to Elizabeth Montague through EE, uh, Elizabeth Montague and Select Friends, as well as an article in Women's Writing, Dr. Johnson on trial, Catherine Talbot and Jemima Gray responding to Samuel Johnson's The Rambler. Now, Anna and Jack are working with a team on digitizing Montague's letters for the Elizabeth Montague Correspondence Online Project, which you can read at mco.swansea.ac.uk. I will put that link um, in the show notes, of course. I highly recommend checking out these letters. They are great reads, especially for anyone who is researching that period for, you know, academic reasons or maybe those that are even working on a historical novel set during that time period. Now, during this interview, we talk about the scope of the collection, but of course, me being me, I am mostly interested in the gossipy parts of the collection and what Montague is writing about other blue stockings and authors like Hannah Moore and Francis Burney. In practical terms, the blue stocking gatherings circulated around a few um, uh, socialites in uh, London. Uh, in the second half of the century. So you had uh, Elizabeth Montague, um, you had uh, Francis Boscawen, um, Elizabeth Vasey, who was a, a very close friend of Montague's, who was an uh, Anglo-Irish uh, blue-stocking socialite, and then uh, Hester Frail Piozzi, um, uh, who was based in Streatham, um, and uh, whose society of uh, Streatham worthies um, kind of had a sort of love-hate relationship with uh, Montague's more kind of central uh, blue stocking group. Um, and actually looking at um, the relationship between Montague and uh, Fanny Burney, uh, Burney was primarily part of uh, Hester Thrale's circle. Um, oh, so she's caught in the middle of exactly. these gals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so there's some interestingly kind of... Um, sometimes shady, sometimes kind of positive mm -hmm. uh, comments uh, thrown from uh, Bernie kind of across the aisle, so to speak. What was like Bernie's relationship with Montague? Exactly. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, so Bernie was um, uh, primarily in uh, Piozzi's circle. Um, so uh, there was a there was both a kind of deference in that um, uh, like she knew how important uh, Montague's uh, good opinion was in sort of London literary circles, um, uh, but then there's also there's a slight uh, yeah there's a there's a degree of kind of side eye, um, mm -hmm. uh, and actually I've got I've got a quote from uh, Bernie's um, journals. This is the first citation of Montague. So um, it's uh, Samuel Johnson and uh, Hester Thrale um, talking about uh, having received an invite to one of Montague's uh, blue stocking gatherings. Um, and then there's a couple of other people involved, but you don't really need to know who they are. The whole part was engaged to dine at Mrs. Montague. So everybody was engaged to dine at Mrs. Montague's. Dr. Johnson said that he had received the most flattering note he had ever read or that anybody else had ever read by way of invitation. Well, so have I too, cried Mrs. Thrale. So if a note from Mrs. Montague is to be boasted of, I beg mine may not be forgot. 
Your note, cried Dr. Johnson, can bear no comparison with mine. I am at the head of philosophers, she says. And I, cried Mrs. Thrale, have all the muses in my train. A fair battle, said my father. This is uh, Bernie's father. Uh, come, compliment to compliment, and see who will hold out the longest. Oh, I'm afraid for Mrs. Thrale, cried Mr. Seward, who's another friend of theirs, for I know Mrs. Montague exerts all her forces when she attacks Dr. Johnson. Oh, yes, said Mrs. Thrale. She has often, I know, flattered him till he has been ready to faint. Well, ladies, said my father, you must get him between you today uh, and see which can, lay the, which can lay on the paint thickest, Mrs. Thrale or Mrs. Montague. So what we've got there is that, I mean, both Thrale and Johnson are kind of obviously flattered by, uh, sort of genuinely flattered by the attention of uh, Elizabeth Montague. But the context that they're talking about it is that um, her incredibly excessive flattery and this kind of, um, uh, like this over, what's the word, over-egged kind of uh, eagerness to please. Um, and I think this is something that you, this is, can be seen as kind of a microcosm of uh, Bernie's approach to Montague in general, um, uh, that she's both kind of admiring, but also sort of, yeah. Um, uh, and the, I mean, the other sort of uh, episode um, or the main kind of episode where Montague and Bernie intersect, um, which is too long to read, but um, uh, it's that basically when, um, uh, Montague uh, learns about um, the publication of Evelina, um, uh, Bernie's uh, 1778 novel. Um, uh, she, on the strength of meeting Bernie, uh, agrees to um, circulate, uh, to spread awareness of its publication and, you know, uh, hype it, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then I don't know. I'm. Uh, it's not. I'm not a Bernie scholar, but I think Montague is one of the sort of candidates for the person who leaked that Bernie was the author of Evelina, because it was originally published anonymously. Um, uh, and then um, uh, it's it's also apparent that Montague uh, follows Bernie's career because when um, uh, Cecilia comes out. Um, uh, there's also a little anecdote in uh, Bernie's journals where she talks about um, uh, Joshua Reynolds, the, uh, the portrait painter, um, telling her that uh, Elizabeth Montague has um, written uh, a, a letter that's, unfortunately, unfortunately, we don't have it, but it's this letter that's full of praise for Cecilia, which she's been circulating among the aristocracy. Um, and Bernie is obviously sort of pleased to hear this. Before we move on to the project and the letters, uh, quick question, because we do have Hannah Moore coming up um, on the show. Any thoughts on her relationship with Hannah Moore? I would say it's quite fraught. Would you say that, Jack, that it's not a simple kind of... Um, I don't think Mon Montague's patronage of people is ever straightforward. Um, That's interesting. And I think people's social standing as well as their sort of capabilities play a huge part in that um so i mean i think the 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 um uh the discomfort in um uh montague and moore's relationship 
um, uh, came from, um, uh, I mean, so basically in 1784, she encounters um, uh, this woman called uh, Ash Yearsley, who's a, um, uh, a milkmaid um, uh, in Bristol. Um, and uh, at the time, um, there's this vogue arising for um, uh, upper middle class uh, or aristocratic um, socialites and people in high society to uh, bring working, specifically working class authors and poets into their sort of um, circles. And um, uh, Hannah Moore learns that um, uh, Anne Yearsley is, um, uh, so she's in uh, an, you know, a difficult marriage and she also writes poetry. Um, so uh, Hannah Moore starts um, uh, kind of supporting uh, Yearsley's poetic career um, uh, where she markets her as um, uh, Lactilla, the milkwoman of Clifton, which is the sort of uh, area outside Bristol that uh, Yearsley was from. Um, and uh, Montague kind of sees this sort of height being uh, built and decides to kind of go in on it with, uh, with more. So the two of them kind of co-sponsor uh, Yearsley, um, uh, which is all well and good. I mean, aside from the sort of horrible, cringy class stuff, basically the, the, there's a lot of Yearsley's poetry that's about um, uh, the nature of being a patronized author, lots of very deferential dedications and things like that. So, you know, that's cringy as hell. But um, uh, the, um, when things get to a head is when um, uh, Moore and Montague decide to keep the proceeds from uh, the collection of Yearsley's poetry. Um, oh. uh, in, they say in order to keep it out of the hands of Yearsley's husband, uh, because he's a drinker, and uh, they, you know, they, they, at least what they say is that they're afraid that he's going to take the money. Um, but what this amounts to is essentially them keeping the profits from Yearsley. So she kicks off, and um, uh, there starts like a newspaper war with uh, Moore and Yearsley writing statements to the papers. Um, uh, about the sort of the uh, arguing backwards and forwards about the sort of the rights of the patron to, you know, to do this. And it all ends extremely ugly, um, Yearsley and more sort of completely separate and uh, Yearsley goes off and sort of pursues her own poetic career with other sort of modes of publication. Um, and Montague is just kind of caught up in this. Um, uh, this is kind of um, the ugly overlap of kind of literary society, uh, financial sort of concerns and like friendship and sort of personal connection. Right. They all kind of come to a head in uh, the relationship with Yearsley, um, uh, which obviously kind of sours the sort of connection between Montague and Moore as well. And um this is also, this becomes like a model for uh, quite a few of Montague's uh, relationship, relations with the other people that she patronizes. Like we get the same narrative come out in uh, the, her relationship with James Woodhouse, who's a, the shoemaker poet, another kind of working class figure, um, who, uh, yeah, they end up falling out massively. 
Um, and then it's less dramatic, but she also falls out with uh, Robert Potter, who was a, um, a classical translator and uh, clergyman um, who uh, I did part of my PhD thesis on their relationship. And basically he, um, yeah, he spends sort of 10 years trying desperately to please her um, uh, and, oh, you know, do what, you know, write whatever she wants him to write. Um, uh, but in the end, it just kind of falls apart because um, uh, he's trying to be her friend, but there's always going to be that gap. Um, right. And that's really sad. Um, I mean, she does have good uh, patron-client relationships as well. Like James Beattie and Elizabeth Carter um, are two of her big success stories where she sort of goes to bat for them, circulates knowledge of their works, and then they become like lifelong friends, like Elizabeth Carter, she's writing to until her death, um, writes to for about 40 years. Let's talk a little bit about these letters because there's a lot. <laughs> Where are they? They're everywhere, as I <laughs> discovered. Um, the bulk are in the Huntington Library in California. Uh, okay. So over 3,000 uh, are held there. Um, of her letters plus the the responses I mean that's where um, the main bulk of, of our project has, has digitized those letters they're now available on our on our site um, and we're working through getting edited transcriptions of them um, but actually it's a a partnership of, of many <laughs> libraries and archives um, across the UK and the US predominantly um, and sometimes you'll find nuance. So my job has been chief investigator of where like uh, other other letters are. And that's super fun. It's great fun and also um, deeply stressful for everyone else in the team. It's very much like she's found. <laughs> <laughs> um, so most recently, you know, talking about Francis Burney, we, we found that there are two letters that we previously didn't have in the, in the um, archive, one at Yale and one at the British Library. Um, so uh, there's it's it's not we're not discovering them it's just as more archives have the means to catalog them online um mm -hmm. we're able to find them more easily I just search her name a lot i think it's, it's there's, there's no great magic to it and track her friendships and see if i can find them um mm -hmm. so we might see an, another side to the, the bernie story through these two letters that we have <laughs> What, what's her tone going to be like? We've got one from 1782 and one from 1790. And in that eight years, you know, does she, does she write differently? Um, mm -hmm. But then there are, there are correspondence where we have hundreds of letters um, to her sister, Sarah Scott, the novelist, okay. um, to her husband, Edward Montague, hundreds and hundreds. Um, and they will be more familial in scope. Um, uh, the, the letters to her husband um, will also be more on business because they have interests in mines and agriculture and things like that. So the, mm -hmm. she's a different person to a lot of different people. I'm glad that you said that because I think that's something we run across on this podcast all the time, especially when we're talking about letters or diaries. Um, just how people, they are writing to an audience and we always need to keep that in mind. Um and it's interesting to see how 
differently they come across to, yeah, a sister or a husband or friend, all of that good stuff. So you guys have it divided up into a bunch of categories. Like how is your archive looking right now? Um, we've got a lot of key, I suppose, our central interests and themes, um, high society gossip, literary coteries, health, politics, estate management, travel, um, I would say are the big ones. Any others that you can think of, Jack? Um, I mean, I think the uh, sort of um, the mechanics of uh, patronage, that material is now sort of very well represented in the, on the website. Um, uh, and then the collections that we've got sort of uh, on their way in the pipeline now, uh, we have a little batch of um, uh, what Anna was talking about, those, uh, those early uh, gossipy, uh, chatty letters from when she's, a, when she's a late teenager and in her 20s, um, uh, which are, um, I mean, they're a, they will, they're a nightmare for our section editors um, uh, because... Um, uh, how many footnotes were there on that letter, Anna? Oh my gosh. Oh, there is about 54 in one of them. Um, all credit to our section editors. Um, because Montague goes to this party in Sunbridge Wells and then she writes back to her friend, the Duchess of Portland, and name drops everyone. Everyone just <laughs> there and everything that's to do with them. And that that's she's so excited and the letters sort of um spills out bulges with all these people that she's she's mentioning um yeah a bit an excited tone which is a completely different shift to, to how she's writing about meeting people uh four decades later mm. I, I mean i think she actually she literally um uh a couple of times in her life um uh sort of more no more or less mapping onto kind of uh, midlife and three-quarter life crisis uh, points, she will write a letter in which she says, like, oh, uh, sort of delight in company is for the young, but I want to be kind of uh, retired and, and um, uh, you know, have my books. Um, uh, but the first one of those she writes when she's about 35. Um, uh, <laughs> and then a week later, we'll be describing the balls and the parties again. Um, Listen, I understand that, that, that life. I <laughs> That makes sense to me. The family letters also show how um, she was um, involved and interested in um, her nieces and nephews' education. Um, she herself got married. She was born Elizabeth Robinson and she got married when she was 24 to um, Edward Montague MP. Um, and they did have a child um, in 1744, but he sadly died. Um, when he was very young. Um, and later she uh, adopts one of her nephews. Is it a formal adoption? He certainly takes her surname. Uh, yes, it's formal. And becomes in charge of his education um, at Harrow and then to Cambridge. And so the family letters show this other preoccupation, I suppose, with, with um, family life. Um, which is completely different to the to the patronage and to the literary world in which she's um, mm. she's involved in, and and that sadness that I, I suppose gets to some of the more serious things that that, that feature in her letters, um, health and concern about health from um, obviously the, the death of her 
sun, but, but smallpox and um, her letters are filled with, with concern for other people. Fantastic one to David Garrick where she writes a letter really late because she's heard he's unwell and really wants news. Um, and her own health was um, poor. Mm. Do you want to take that one, Jack, about the... Um, uh, yes. So, um, I mean, Montague, uh, I mean, all of the blue stockings, uh, as, a, as a bunch, they, they, there was a lot of health issues. Um, uh, Elizabeth Montague had uh, consistent problems with her eyes and uh, her digestion. Um, uh, Elizabeth Carter, um, uh, the uh, classicist, um, uh, she suffered from really, really severe migraines. Um, uh, and actually, if I can do just a little tangent, um, uh, one, of the, one of the interesting things about um, accessing these original letters as opposed to the uh, 19th century editions uh, of these works that have been kind of passed down to us, um, uh, is looking back at the original manuscripts, you can see where um, editors who, who were all sort of family members or closely related were kind of censoring uh, the original letters. There is a fantastic um, uh, example of this in um, a letter uh, from so it's Elizabeth Montague uh, writing to I believe it's Sarah Scott, her sister, but she's talking about the Duchess of Portland, and um, uh, it's she says um, uh, I am greatly relieved uh, to hear that uh, the Duchess of Portland has recovered um, uh, from uh, it, from her illness or something like that, and then sentence ends moves on. That's in the published, that's in the one that was uh, printed in the 19th century. Um, uh, in the original letter, it says, I am pleased to hear that the Duchess of Portland has been relieved from her illness, comma, by passing a gallstone the size of a chicken egg. And then oh the sentence gosh. ends. But uh, something that we've encountered in uh, putting together this edition and having a look through uh, all of these letters um, is uh, an anecdote which, um, you know, I can't, I can't be quoted on it because um, uh, it may, you know, we may be overstating its significance, but there is a letter from uh, 
the odour loose into my left eye and nostril, a great, great quantity into my mouth. I was very near suffocated, but after dreadful struggles recovered my senses. I lay in strong convulsions about half an hour, and when they abated, found my mouth and throat excoriated and my eye scalded. The blood flowed from them. A violent inflammation ensued. There was little hopes of my life for two days. I passed eight days in almost as much torment as human nature can endure, but it pleased God to restore me by degrees to health. Eau de luce is a composition of sal ammoniac, and had the least drop passed into my stomach, I must have died. My throat was so swelled, it was four days after the accident before I could swallow at all for a week. It salated me in a violent manner, and indeed it was near three weeks before the spitting went off. My eye was was long very weak. I am now in better health than before this disaster, but my throat is not quite recovered. It's horrendous, and, and we've spoken before about how uh, we think this this letter is as valuable as, as Francis Burney's um, uh, writing mastectomy letter. Yeah. And, and, and this should join it, just the kind of the medical experience, I suppose, for people at this time. Um, it's just awful. And to, I, to write so well about it, I think, is why, what strikes me. Um, mm-hmm. She doesn't shy away from it. And in this letter, she doesn't you know, pretend she, she, she details it to Carter. Well, I was just going to say, like, I mean, this, and this is sort of also, this is kind of part and parcel of, um, uh, there's a lot of kind of, I mean, the, the two things that sort of come up the most often in Montague's letters in terms of health are either sort of um, uh, resting at Tunbridge Wells um, uh, or another kind of spa town, um, which is sort of, you know, is, a, is fine, like it's as much sociable as it is anything else, like a lot of her writing from there is talking about who she meets. But then the other thing that we see fairly often is uh, like bloodletting. Like uh, mm-hmm. bleeding is still a thing um, at this point. The, the thing about the health is that it's, it's pretty, much, pretty much a fixture. Like there are very few letters that don't have at least a sentence or two about her health and the health of the recipient. Mm-hmm. I think last year um, we were really conscious of that as well um, with the pandemic and we were mm-hmm. doing some of our tweets and they all seem to focus on health and how you write to people who are apart from you and the concern um, and that experience in the 21st century gave me a very different experience reading about it. I think before I found it a little bit frustrating. I wanted to get back to the balls and the and the gossip and the literary connections and I've reconsidered the concern with health it's not just filling the page it's not just you know politeness there's an urgency about concern for the health of yourself and for others and making sure you record that and tell people um, that I definitely understand better now now, um, let's get into some of your favorite letters. I'm sure there's loads. I'm sure there's like letters that you come across that you're like, oh, my God, like what has gotten you very excited? Uh, the letter that I want to talk about is one that she wrote to um, uh, a philosopher called Lord Keynes, 
uh, who was, um, he was basically a, a sort of proto-anthropologist. Um, uh, he wrote about um, uh, sort of world cultures as a way of talking about sort of the evolution of human society. Um, and obviously, because he was a sort of mid-Enlightenment gentleman, that's really racist. Um, uh, and he has a lot of not very comfortable things to say. Um, uh, what um, uh, his correspondence with Elizabeth Montague uh, highlights, though, is that um, uh, basically Montague uh, wrote to him as an equal, as a kind of, as a sort of fellow intellectual, and um, he essentially keeps trying to shut her down. Like um, uh, his, you know, her letters to him will be sort of, you know, five, six pages long and will contain lots of passages like the one I'm about to, to read. Um, and her responses to, and his responses to her will be very kind of short and terse. Um, uh, event, you know, their relationship goes on for a sort of, uh, about a decade and um, uh, she writes um, several uh, she writes several pieces of uh, philosophy uh, which she sends to him uh, she writes an essay on the nature of ornament um, and uh, she does a piece on um, uh, garden design I believe um, uh, which he then takes and publishes in his own philosophical writings without proper accreditation. Like- um, This guy. Yeah, this guy. Uh, He's classic. Uh, so he will, and then, and then, he, and then he has the, the audacity to then write to her and say, oh, I couldn't name you in my publications because I would be accused of arrogance for proclaiming my acquaintance with the great Mrs. Montague. Um, so, sure, yeah. Um, but anyway, so, um, uh, when she writes to him, what she does is she takes control of their conversation. Like she uses all of the kind of literary devices in her arsenal to basically um, take all of the, the power that he has because of his kind of aristocracy and his sort of status as a published writer. Um, and uh, she basically forces him into, into this conversation with her. And the letter that I'm going to read is um, uh, where she does this using space. So she basically projects herself into Scotland, into the Scottish Highlands, uh, which is where his estate was. And um, uh, yeah, kind of creates this imagined space where they can engage as equals. Um, I hope that's not too much preamble. So, my Lord, from the, from the consciousness and confidence of friendship, I delayed answering your last letter till this very moment, for I waited till I could find health and leisure together. See? Um, the one rarely visits and the other never elides me. I am convinced that we have been acquainted in a state of pre-existence. I do not know when, nor indeed where, whether we first met on the orb of this earth and had a short coquetry in the planet Venus or a sober platonic love in Saturn. But I am surer we did not first meet at Edinburgh in the year 1766. Therefore, the doubts that would be pardonable in a new friendship cannot become us. Your lordship may remember our souls did not stand like strangers at a distance, making formal obeisances the first evening we supped together at our friend Dr. Gregory's. 
we took up our story where it perhaps ended some thousand years before the creation of this globe. If we gave it a prefatory compliment, it was only as the customary form to the new edition of a work before published. I am extremely flattered that I was one of your Christmas guests at Blair Drummond. I often endeavoured to imagine how your cascades looked when they were fixed in icicles, your rivers turned to solid crystal, and Ben Lohman's brown sides were glittering with snow. But I had not the presumption to think I could imagine what that such a society was saying, so that I was deprived of the best part of the pleasure of the party. I think your lordship was unlucky that you did not stay in the country till the thaw. The torrents from the mountains, the deluge plains, the ice cracking and rushing down the rivers, and the cascades breaking their crystal bands must have been a fine sight. And what you should have been delighted with, so what, sorry, what you I should have been delighted to have seen, though perhaps heretofore, we were joint spectators of Deucalion's flood. But yeah, so you can see she's describing their first encounter where basically she was um, in, his, in his court, so to speak, like she was mm -hmm. on his turf. But what she does in the letter is completely obliterate any advantage that that gives him by creating this kind of metaphysical fantasy of them meeting on other planets. And then uh, she sort of translates that into the, into the Scottish landscape. So I find, yeah. This is this is a, a fascinating uh, letter, I think, and beautifully written too. My God, mm -hmm. I mean, I would love just like an Elizabeth Montague distracts <laughs> situation as well. Like, oh my God, that would be great. Like we, I mean, we like the uh, the level of um, nastiness that she is capable of. Like this is her. This is her being very polite and kind of managing this circumstance when she actively hates somebody like uh, she hated David Hume and uh, Joseph Priestley um, uh, because she thought they were deists and they were threatening the, uh, the Church of England. Um, uh, she's capable of writing letters where she um, fantasizes about um, uh, Hume's nurse pressing too hard on his head when he was a baby and crushing his skull. So I'm, I like the much lighter the lighter stuff. Uh, so as Jack mentioned earlier, he, he sort of got into to Montague through his work on the blue stockings. Um, my research interests lie in, um, in the theatre, in celebrity and news culture. And so um, I'll be editing um, Montague's letters to David Garrick. Um, and uh, so it sort of follows on from, from those interests. And I pick just two short excerpts, I think, which really sum up things that I have found really fascinating about her. And the first is in um, a letter to, to David Garrick, where she says, my best compliments to Mrs. Garrick. Somebody sends her love to somebody. I desire, madam, not to inquire who or what that means. And I love it. It's a tantalizing <laughs> thing that I cannot possibly understand. It's wonderful. I think it captures a sense of friendship and of wit and lightness and reminds me that this is not an austere um, literary or cultural figure, but it's a person with friends and she's using these, these letters to, to, um, uh, to engage and have fun as, as, as well as write mm -hmm. beautifully. I think it's very clever. And the second is in a 
uh, a letter to her sister-in-law, Mary Robinson, in April 1773. Um, and she writes, when newspapers only told weddings, births and burials, a letter from London bore some value. But now that the public papers not only tell when men are born and die, but every folly they contrive to insert in between those periods, the literary correspondent has nothing left. And when I read this line, I was absolutely captivated um, because my own research focuses on um, the period from the 1770s when newspapers introduced gossip and uh, gotcha. on, a, on a daily um, on a daily schedule there is gossip about all kinds of people the the I mean everyone thinks their period a bit like the rise of the middle classes the rise of celebrity it's a kind of it's a thing you always think celebrities first appear when you when you are interested in um but I think this comment does suggest recognition that the newspapers are doing something slightly different at this time um, actually her letters to Mary Robinson are often about her family so so I think there's a bit of a joke in there as well um, but I really like that I like how aware she is of, of the moment in which she's living um, mm -hmm. uh, and how that might impact upon her, her story correspondent and we are back I really enjoyed the discussion on the ways in which a letter and often a diary is just specifically written to an audience, right? You know, even mm -hmm. though it might be personal correspondence, writing with the idea someone is going to see this, someone other than the person you're writing to might see this. I also really liked the discussion around how the pandemic is changing, how we today are reading and understanding letters about health and just like having a better understanding of the urgency about mm -hmm. health and these are things that we've touched before on the show multiple times and also in our book why is she wrote and if you're interested in reading more about the mastectomy letter which is referenced in the interview uh, it was written by francis bernie and we have a whole little chapter dedicated on why she wrote it and if that sounds interesting to you, then you should grab a coffee. And <laughs> I, you know, I feel bad shilling the book this much, but it just seemed really relevant. <laughs> and was. I thought the mastectomy letter was a tough, like a tough read. And then in the interview and it's like, oh, and then she was bleeding out of her eyes. And I was like, okay, that's worse. <laughs> it's pretty bad. That letter's worse. Bad. I'm glad we didn't have to illustrate that one. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Kaylee is just like, Hannah, I can't. I can't have six no. panels of someone bleeding from their eyes. I do want to circle back to the Anne Yearsley versus Hannah Moore and Elizabeth Montague situation because I found that feud and the politics of patronage to be like so interesting. And I've been thinking a lot about it this week in particular as we, I guess, collectively celebrate the re-release <laughs> of Taylor Swift's version of Red. Yeah. Um which I don't know if I need to explain. I feel like you guys probably all know about Taylor and Scooter Braun. If not, you know, pause this podcast and just look at the internet. It'll be right there for you to find. <laughs> Very easy, easy to access. So as I kind of go over the story a little bit, I feel like the exact reasons I think this will become clear. But, you know, raise your hand, Hannah, if you think I'm totally off base. 
Oh, I will. But um, maybe we should start off, though, by talking a little bit about who Hannah Moore was. Mm-hmm. Do you want so, to tell us, Hannah? Hannah Moore. Not me. Hannah Moore was a playwright, poet, abolitionist, and educational reformer from Mayans, Bristol. And she was financially... I, you know what? I really I said Bristol in the most Portsmouth accent I could have said, really betraying <laughs> that I'm not from here. <laughs> That's a real shame. Do uh, it like a real Bristolian? I could never. <laughs> I could not. <laughs> no, I tried in secondary school and, um, yeah, they... They were like, there's no R in the word cinema, Hannah. And I was like, no, you're right. I should stop trying to fit in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she was financially independent due to the fact that her fiancé stood her up and instead of marrying her, offered her a living of £200 a year. That's what? Sam, come on. I I want the inflation, obviously. Like 200. Yeah, that's not going to cut it. But that sounds great. Uh, Good deal. Great deal. (laughs) So she used that money to set up a school and she patronised the artists like Anna, like Anne Yearsley. Indeed. So Anne Yearsley was a milkmaid and a poet from Bristol. They actually um, got hooked up because she was selling milk to Hannah Moore's cook. That's, oh. that's how they met. Um, Anne had no formal training or education, but she was taught to read and write by her mother and brother and had access to a circulating library. So she read quite a bit. In 1774, she married a man named John Yearsley, and the pair had six children, but he was unable to really provide a stable home for his family. And in 1784, the family found themselves living in a barn The family was then saved by um, a man named Richard Vaughn, as well as the patronage of Hannah Moore. So Moore had discovered Yearsley's poetry and immediately reached out to Montague and uh, was trying to sell Montague basically on Yearsley. And Hannah, will you read uh, just a little quote from this letter that she sent? All I see of her raises my opinion of her genius. I send you a passage or two from a longer poem, which you will allow to be extraordinary for a milker of cows and a feeder of hogs who has never seen a dictionary. I, if I was still on Tinder, I would make my bio a milker of cows and a feeder of hogs who has never seen a dictionary. (laughs) That is, that is tip top. Moore and Montague are able to generate a lot of excitement for Yearsley's work and actually raise a very large subscription among their friends and peers for her first book, which is titled Poems on Several Occasions in 1785. And then it's even reissued two more times that year. So Yearsley is a definite success. They did a Kickstarter. (laughs) They basically do a Kickstarter. (laughs) That's Among funny. their rich friends, yeah. With some stretch goals thrown in. We'll print mm-hmm. it again. Don't yeah. worry. We'll keep going. <laughs> and um, I believe they even had 500 pounds in profits wow. from that. So that's quite quite yeah. a bit of money in those days. Um, unfortunately, those profits are being held hostage in a trust that more convinced Yearsley to sign to keep that money away from her no good husband. Yeah. Um, of course, though, Yearsley and her family, they need that money. Those kids mm-hmm. need that money. 
So she asks more if she can essentially sort of bypass this, um, be added onto the trust so she can actually give the money to her children. And uh, that does not go down well. And this is how Moore describes the encounter to Montague in another letter. Our unhappy milkwoman has treated me with the blackest ingratitude. She accused me in the openest and fullest manner of a design to defraud her of the money and demanded it. She had before cheerfully signed the deed which empowered you, madam, and me to be trustees for her children, lest her husband should spend it. Nothing would appease her fury but having the money to spend, and which she expected in a fit of vulgar resentment I should give her, but my sense of duty will not allow it. Her other charges against me are that I have spoilt her verses by my corrections, and that she will write another book directly to show that I was of no use to her, that I have ruined her reputation by the preface, which is full of falsehoods, that it was the height of insult and barbarity to tell that she was a poor that she was poor and a milkwoman. My dear madam, I could weep over our fallen human nature. I hear she wears very fine gauze bonnets, long lappets, gold pins, etc. Is such a woman to be trusted with her poor children's money? Ooh. So now it's getting a little messy. Mm. Um that is so you it's very messy, right? Mm. Guys. So Yearsley wrote that Moore, on her end of this encounter, um, had called her a savage Mm. and told her that she had a reprobate mind and was a Mm. bad woman. And Moore also burned the original manuscripts and pretty much took credit for Yearsley's work by implying that it was, you know, her edits that had made the book a success to begin with. And was just generally like trashing her reputation. Moore also took it a a step further um, by making the feud public by publishing an account of it in the local newspaper. And then Yearsley responded by writing a new preface in the fourth edition of Poems on Several Occasions. But that is not all she did. This is when she gets extra like Taylor style. And Mm. I, I enjoy this. So... In 1787, Yearsley starts writing poetry for newspapers, which was kind of a surprising move for someone of her stature. So newspaper poems were generally written by up-and-comers or maybe more established poets just trying out new material because it's so disposable, right? It's Mm -hmm. newspapers here today, gone tomorrow, especially then. Now, Yearsley could have been doing this for some quick cash and or she could have been doing this to expand and sort of reshape her audience and like regain control of the mm-hmm. narrative, which I think is actually super savvy. Yeah, 100%. She then drops her next book, Poems on Various Subjects. I do take issue with her titles. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's not grabby, is it? And I they... kept getting those two books confused and I was like, oh, wow. This is <laughs> just, a, you know, another title. Be great. So she drops her next book, Poems on Various Subjects, with a section about the feud entitled Mrs. Yearsley's Narrative, which is literally Taylor's version, right? Yes, Just how Taylor has mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. And then she also included a copy of the trust documents to back up her side of the story. And, uh. and 
she includes poems with titles like To Those Who Accuse the Author of Ingratitude <laughs> and Addresses to Revenge, a Fragment. Fantastic. I mean, those come could on. be track titles. <laughs> those absolutely yeah. could. <laughs> So, you know, what I'm trying to say here is that Anne Yearsley would totally support Taylor Swift taking revenge on Scooter Braun for buying her masters by re-recording all of her masters and killing his future profits. And also would be down with not one or two or three. I think maybe now we're up to four versions of a song that rails against an ex-boyfriend who kept your scarf. Um, I would also like to add that Taylor is just working in a long literary tradition of getting revenge and reshaping the narrative, which mm-hmm. which I like. I'm into that. I like Petty. So anyway, next week, we'll be talking about another scandalous woman who was taking control of her own narrative as well. Mary Robinson, the author, actress and reformed gambler. And she was also from Bristol. That's Everyone's like the major connection. Yeah, yeah, she's from Bristol. I would love to know what part of Bristol all of these people are from, but I alas. feel like when we're reunited, we should do like a Bristol walking tour of like scandalous women. Yeah. Maybe we could get like a ritual or something. Or like a yeah, oh, yeah. oh, we've got these electric scooters called Voids. Could we do like a Void tour? Just so yeah. know, there's some hills and you know, just it is hilly there. Yeah, that's we'll true. get Sam to drive us. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> <That> sounds good. <laughs> really, there's something going on in the water over there in Bristol. Um, so Hannah, mm. if people want to see those pictures of uh the Royal Crescent Museum, yeah. where should they go? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. And you can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for, you guessed it, Bonnets Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, wherever you get your literary 